Thanks to Health IQ for supporting industry focus. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com/fool to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz and potentially save up to 41% on premiums. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Thursday, and I'm joined once again by Motley Fool contributor Matt Delalo via Skype. Matt, how's it going? Doing pretty well. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. We just uh, were talking before the show. I haven't, you know, been in the studio with you guys since, you know, before Christmas. We pre-recorded our New Year's show. Uh, what you been up to? Um, just doing all the kind of Christmas stuff. Went to see family. Um, you know, and so st- trying to stay warm. It's very cold up here in Pittsburgh. Yeah, tell me about that. I uh, I drove down from uh from up here near near Virginia down to Alabama. Uh, so got to wear shorts for a couple days, and then you come back up here, and it's you know whipping winds and, and freezing. So, uh, but it was nice to get out and see you know living in a city, kind of to see the country and see how you know the big open spaces that I guess you don't see on a day to day basis, uh, driving around. Anyway, it's great to be back with you. We've got a great show planned today. We're going to be breaking down another huge oil find in South America, and why the highest owned oil and gas stock on Robinhood doesn't belong anywhere near your portfolio. But first, uh, really the news this week has been uh, the attacks in Iran. Late last week, an airstrike killed Major General Qasem Soleimani, uh, who's who's the leader of the foreign wing of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And, you know, it's it's an understatement to say it's an attack that's expected to heighten conflict in the region. World War III uh, was trending on Twitter. Oil prices were up 5% at the end of last week, but have since kind of recovered back to below where they were, Matt. Just kind of as an observer of the energy market and just a world citizen, uh, what was kind of your reaction to this story? Initially, I was kind of like shocked. I mean, that's a pretty major move that we made. Uh, so the, the expectation is that there was going to be some sort of retaliation, which we got on, I don't know, it was a Thursday, Wednesday night, Tuesday night, something like that, where Iran shot some missiles at a U.S. air base. And so the expectation was that it was going to escalate from there, that the U.S. would respond in kind. However, President Trump, to pretty much everybody's surprise, was just like, this seems like a de-escalation. We're going to put some economic sanctions on. So oil, which shot up again uh, right after Iran shot those missiles overnight, it like collapsed yesterday, um, and you know, now it's down pat below the the price that it was before the attack. So it's just really surprising how this isn't having any impact on the markets. Yeah, I think we look back to the, the previous attack, uh, which some have alleged to be from Iran as well, back in September. Uh, attacks on Saudi oil infrastructure that shot oil up fifteen percent less than two weeks later. Uh, prices settled back down. You know, some of the worries uh, after this latest Iran uh, incident was that hey, maybe maybe Iran uh, could attack uh, uh, some energy infrastructure in the Middle East, and that would that would disrupt supplies. Well, that we've already seen that happen back in September, and the market absorbed that relatively quickly. Are, are we seeing just a point where geopolitical events aren't having the same impact uh, in energy markets that maybe they have had in the past? Yeah, that's definitely the case. Just because the market can recover so much quickly now, a lot of that's due to shale. They they are just there's so much extra supply in the market, and that's why we're seeing OPEC cut production again. Uh, they announced another like 500,000 barrel a day cut earlier. Uh, that's that that'll start this year, and it's just because there's so much extra oil just piling up in storage, and so the U.S. is becoming this superpower of exporting. And then also there's just 
shale has changed the way that oil wells are, are kind of like drilled. It used to take a long time, months to years to kind of bring a new oil field online. Shale wells are like a matter of months. And a lot of times oil companies develop these inventories that are called duck wells, which are drilled uncompleted wells. And so they just wait for the oil price to rise and then they send out completion crews that actually do the fracking of these wells and they can complete, you know, them very quickly. And they'll, some of them can, you know, thousand barrels plus a day. So you can really add supply quickly with these. And right now there's a, actually a big inventory. Uh, I checked, there was like 7,500 of these wells and the U.S. is on pace to drill and complete 20,000 wells this year. So that's a nice cushion to have. And that that's why we're just not seeing these big prolonged spikes in oil. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, we don't see global conflict and we don't have to worry about these things, but it really just shows how much shale has just changed the game on, on a global scale when it comes to, to energy markets. Um, going kind of the, to the other side of the world, there was a huge story coming out of South America this week, specifically in Suriname. On Tuesday, Apache and Total announced that they had found significant deposits of oil off the coast there. That news sent Apache shares up 25%, which was its largest gain since 1973. Uh, Matt, uh, what should we know about this news? Yeah, so uh, Apache, which is pretty much a, a U.S.-focused driller in the Permian, they've been exploring uh, out in uh, Suriname, which is near Guyana, Venezuela, that part of South America. And what they did is they the, they put out a report probably a month or so ago saying that they, they completed this well, and they weren't sure how good it was going to be, and so the stock fell. However, then they actually like put out what they um, – what they actually found, and they they tested three locations, and one of them found a 240-foot column of oil, which is really remarkable, and another found a 164-foot column. Uh, so to put that in context, Exxon and Hess, they've been drilling in Guyana. Their last two finds were 108 feet and 164 feet, so this is much bigger than even those discoveries. Analysts believe it's about 1.5 billion barrels recoverable oil, so this leads them to say this is transformative, game changer for Apache. It's really, if they, you know, it depends on how much it's going to cost and what else they can find. But it looks like a really big find for Apache. It could really drive them in the future. Yeah, I've seen estimates that it could be a, a increase the value of the project up to a billion dollars. This is a company that's a twelve billion dollar company, so obviously a significant uh, uh, portion. Uh, when you look at, you talk about the cost and how important that's going to be uh, for this this development moving forward, this partnership between Apache and Total. What are the kind of terms of that partnership and what advantages does it give to both of those operators? Yeah, so uh, a lot of these drillers will bring on big time partners that know what they're doing offshore to kind of help offset the cost and bring in their expertise. So in this case, French oil giant Total is who's partnering, who had partnered up with Apache. It's a 50-50 partnership, however, uh, Total's uh, going to pay the first five or five billion of the first uh, seven point five billion dollars of appraisal and development cost, and then twenty five percent kind of after that first uh, seven point five billion. So they're going to bear a lot of the upfront costs, and that helps reduce the risk for Apache. And then there's some structure, and you know how it pays off. Total gets more of the profits up front. That is a fifty fifty share, but it'll really help Apache through this. It, time period of investment. When we talk about shale, it's very quick. You know, they can bring in a well online in a couple of months. These offshore projects, five years a minimum is what it'll take. That's what it took Exxon on Guyana or to bring on Guyana. So we're talking about a lot of money being spent over several years before they see a return. So that's why they need this partnership. 
Yeah, obviously, uh, you know, as we look to this region, we've had two major finds now in Suriname with this Apache find. And then, as you mentioned several times, the Hess and Exxon uh, a find out in Guyana. Uh, are there any other companies that have plays out in this region? Could we see some more finds coming down the line here soon? Yeah, there's there's several companies. Cosmos um, Energy is one. They've they drilled a dry hole in Suriname uh, a couple years ago. But they have some more exploration blocks with Chevron, and then another partnership with Chevron and Hess. Hess actually has an exploration block out there with ExxonMobil and Equinor. And then Tula Oil, they've been in the news a little bit because they're, they're a little bit further along. They're in Guyana. They've got Exxon or um, acreage right next to Exxon and Hess. However, they've had mixed results. So we're going to see uh, either it, it, it's just going to be a mixed bag. That's the whole thing with oil offshore exploration. You really don't know what you're going to get. So one of these names could turn out to be the next, um, you know, offshore Guyana and just be a major play. Or they could drill a bunch of dry holes and write everything off. So we just don't know. That's what makes it interesting. But it's something that investors just need to have a high risk tolerance if they're going to chase it. Certainly, certainly. I think that you know it's a textbook case of what you would call speculation. I, just a, a couple months back, there were folks that you know were kind of down on this uh, Apache uh, development, and then all of a sudden we see this huge twenty five percent spike. Uh, so something to be aware of, uh, you know, as you're investing in these ENP players. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. On the back half of the show, we're going to talk about one ENP player you should not invest in. Uh, but first, if you're a runner or a cyclist, or you're into CrossFit or another type of athlete, or even if you're a committed weekend warrior, if you're a vegetarian or vegan then you deserve to be rewarded for your hard work with more affordable life insurance rates. That's why we're introducing Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. Health IQ can save you up to 41% because physically active people have significantly lower risks for heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. But these savings are exclusive to Health IQ, and you won't find them anywhere else, and you must qualify to get a special rate. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com fool to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared to other providers. That's healthiq.com fool. Okay, Matt, so on the back half of the show, I want to talk about Chesapeake Energy. Uh, from, from time to time, I like to go on robintrack.net and take a look and see what are the highest held stocks on Robinhood, uh, the, the free online brokerage platform. And I recently went online to check uh, to see what the most popular oil and gas stock on that platform was. And it actually turned out to be Chesapeake Energy. Matt, does that surprise you that Chesapeake Energy is the highest owned oil and gas stock on Robinhood? Unfortunately, it does not. As a writer for Fool.com, we get a lot of data on how well articles perform. And I know anytime I write about Chesapeake Energy, people just click on it like crazy. So, unfortunately, yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's it is. This is a stock just just for context. Uh, the stock declined greater than sixty percent in two thousand nineteen, and the ownership was up fifty five percent on Robinhood. Uh, stock that really has not performed very well, and it's interesting because Chesapeake really was one of the companies that in the early days of the shell boom really drove this explosion. Uh, you had a swashbuckling leader, Aubrey McClendon, you know, really driving uh, a lot of the investment in the industry, getting a lot of people excited about it. Matt, what do you remember about kind of that time for Chesapeake early in the 2010s when the shale industry was really just beginning to explode? 
Yeah, actually, it's for, for my own personal history, one of the first things I learned about shale was uh, Chesapeake, just locally. I grew up in upstate New York, and before they passed the fracking ban, Chesapeake was one of the companies up there trying to lease land uh, out in the country where I lived. And so I was following it uh, there. And then when I moved to Pittsburgh after I got married, uh, you know, there was a lot of shale drilling out here when Chesapeake was a name in the news. So that's actually how I got interested in energy and and uh the, the stock market and became a fool. So actually I'd, I've written about them for several years now and it's just, it's been an interesting story. It's been a terrible investment the whole time. And a lot of it has to do with just, I would get call it empire building. Uh, McClendon and his team just wanted to build the biggest shale driller in the country. And so they leased as much land as they could and piled on as much debt as it took. You know, capital markets were wide open back then, so they just sold stock and borrowed money to just become, at one point, they were the second biggest natural gas driller in the country. Unfortunately, they really didn't pay much attention to profits. They thought that profits would eventually come because gas rates would remain high, and that wasn't the case. And so it just saddled Chesapeake with all this debt, and they've spent the past decade dealing with that. Yeah, no, it, it, it's interesting in that there was this huge explosion in, in the shale industry, particularly as you've got these old landmen like like Aubrey McClendon. It was the test, textbook example of these folks, you know, uh, great deal makers, great at selling their business. Uh, they grew these large empires, but never really produced cash flow or profits in a significant way at any point during the cycle, even when, uh, you know, energy prices were significantly higher than they are today. Um and if you're an intro- introductory investor, uh, someone who's just just reading about kind of Ben Graham, Warren Buffett, you might take a look at Chesapeake's balance sheet, see all the shale assets that it's accumulated, and say, "Hey, this company is trading at 0.5 times book value. Uh, isn't this a great value investment?" Matt, why would that be wrong if someone analyzed the company in that way? Yeah, valuation is more art than science, anyways. And then the oil sector, it's even more so because you have ever-changing things like. Pro- commodity price assumptions and then sentiment, uh, where the values of assets change all the time. Chesapeake has been a perfect example. They'll buy something for several billion dollars or spend several billion dollars building up a position, and then commodity prices fall or companies can't get access to capital, and then that asset's just not worth anything. Uh, And in Chesapeake's case, they've been having to sell assets at fire sale prices. And so, you know, you, you look at their balance sheets and in, in Chesapeake's case, it has $16.5 billion of assets against $11.8 billion of liabilities. And so it looks like, hey, I've got a company that has some value here. However, trying to actually pin what the value of those assets are is really tough. And there's a lot of ways that you can try to do that. You can look at market values. But in Chesapeake's case, they're trying to sell their Hainesville uh, gas asset, for example. Supplies 33% of their production, which is amenable. However, it looks like it's only going to sell on the market for about a billion dollars. And so if that's the case, and Chesapeake is going to have to write down some of the, the value that they have in their balance sheet, and that's going to you know tear that price of book value thing to part. Yeah, you got to remember that when these assets are carried at book value, their book value is usually their cost, unless there has been some impairment down the line. And for a lot of energy assets in the U.S., we're starting to see companies uh, take impairments and write downs. Uh, I saw an estimate uh, from Barclays in the Wall Street Journal that said most, uh, at least, oil majors, uh, their their estimates of their uh, carrying values for their assets are based on an expected oil price of $75 to $90 a barrel. Obviously, we're well below that now uh, in the 60s. And we saw this uh, uh, 
last year where Chevron took around a $10 billion write-down. Uh, Spanish energy company Repsol took around a $5 billion write-down. And Shell took a $2 billion write-down. So, we're really starting to see those take place. And uh, Chesapeake should be no different. Uh, when you drill down to the other, other parts of the operations, they're, they're really uh, are, is something to be lacking there as well, Matt. You want to talk about that? Yeah, th- th- there's there's really it's it's hard to find something to actually like about Chesapeake when you compare it to all the other energy companies out there. So balance sheets usually where I look at first, uh, nine point seven billion dollars of debt at the end of the third quarter. This is a company that has a one point six billion dollar market cap, so the debt to equity is just you know way out of proportion. Now they've done some things to get their debt uh, under control recently. I think they're they've cut it by about a billion dollars. Uh, through the end of last year, through some equity exchanges and things. But uh, one of the metrics that energy investors look at is this debt to EBITDA ratio. And Chesapeake's about four times, which is double what most, which is double its target. And then most of its peers like to have it less than one times because oil is just so um, all over the place. So they're just their leverage ratios way out of whack. And then second, no growth. You know, Chesapeake was once known as one of the biggest growth stocks in the energy sector. They um, Their projections on pace to decline 10% next year. And that's a big letdown because they initially they thought they were going to grow their oil production 10%. Uh, but they just don't have the cash flow to support their debt and grow production. Now, you've got so many of these shale drillers that are producing enough cash at $50 oil to grow 10% plus pay dividend plus buy box stock. So, Chesapeake's just not appealing when you look at it at that aspect. And then uh, the third one for me is dilution. Their share count's up 88% last three years, and incidentally, the stock's down 87% at time frame. That's because they use their stock to buy Wild Horse, and then they've done all these debt and equity exchanges. So. Chesapeake is more focused on growing and surviving than creating value for their shareholders. And that's just not an appealing stock, in my opinion. Sure. I mean, you look at their capital structure, I'm seeing uh, looks like $1.7 billion of debt maturing in 2021, another $4 billion maturing in 2023. Uh, so, when you look at a, a company who's, from an operational point of view, uh, just not able to produce enough cash to, to fund continued growth uh, you know, from, from their from their assets, you have a, a, an environment uh, when it comes to oil and gas where it just doesn't seem that these prices are going to recover uh, during that period of time uh, to be able to support paying down debt and support the company's operations going forward. So, uh, do you think this company is potentially a bankruptcy candidate? Uh, yeah, I, I see. It, you know, it's one of those binary outcomes where it's either going to double or it's going to go to zero. And I think a lot of you know the people that would buy it on Robinhood will see, oh, the stock price is less than a dollar. It just you know it can easily double, and that's the case if natural gas prices spike, which is really tough. There's just so much gas in the market. I know you know we've got all these LNG export facilities that are going to help, but. I don't see gas prices really rallying. So that really puts a kibosh on Chesapeake really actually being able to create value from its assets. So it either goes bankrupt or it spends the next several years in this like zombie state where it's selling assets and it's doing debt exchanges and it's really not going to be actually doing things that create value for investors. So it's just not a compelling thing for an investor to be looking at. Yeah, I agree, Matt. I, this. Hopefully, this company does not remain the highest-owned oil and gas stock on Robinhood much longer. Uh, we'll, we'll just have to see. If an investor wants to, you know, maybe speculate in the EMP markets, uh, you know, they 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 want to speculate on on oil prices improving or, or something like that. Are there any EMP players you think might be a more attractive investment uh, for someone to go out and buy? 
Yeah, there's a lot of them, but I'll, for more of a kind of growth one, uh, Di Diamondback Energy, they're focused on the Permian Basin, ticker symbol, symbols FANG. They are, so at $45 a barrel oil, they can generate enough cash to grow their production 10 to 15% plus pay a dividend. And then anything over that's gravy for them. They'll, at $55 oil, they can generate like $675 million dollars of free cash flow, which is enough to buy back about 5% of their stock. So you've got a company that can thrive at lower oil prices and really do well if oil prices go higher and generate just a, you know, a ton of cash. So that's one of several that have really positioned themselves for this environment. All right, folks, that's one to add to your watch list. Matt, thanks as always for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Matt Delalo, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.